Jesus without actually getting Jesus. They want more healings, more bread, more signs, more show. Jesus is using this as an opportunity to teach the people that he doesn't just make bread, the kind of bread that perishes for a day, that keeps you alive for a week. Jesus instead is bread come down from heaven to give life to the world. Again, material bread has some value in keeping us alive physically. Jesus has infinite value. He gives life to the soul now on the promise of resurrection later. We've seen that the whole of Christ is enough to satisfy the whole person and the whole world. But we must go to him. And so we jump back in the middle of a conversation to hear how the crowds will respond to Jesus' offer for life. If you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41 and going through verse 59. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. We'll split our text in half this morning by considering the two major complaints that are being levied against Christ. He makes at least two claims about himself that lead the people to grumble. First, we'll see that the people complain over Jesus' origin. And secondly, we'll see that the people complain over Jesus' offer. The people complain or they grumble over Jesus' origin. They complain or grumble over his offer. His origin, right? Jesus claimed that he's not originally from Capernaum or Bethlehem, but heaven. And second, it's not just his offer to live forever, but the means by which we come into it. Jesus says that we must feast upon his flesh and drink his blood. 
So how did the people respond to Jesus' claim that his bread come from heaven to give life to the world? Verse 41. The Jews started grumbling. The Jews started grumbling. I want to point something out, and you maybe caught this this morning or this week as you looked at the text. Notice that Jesus' dialogue partners have changed. Jesus has been interacting with the crowds, but here there's a change to the Jews. The Jews in John typically are the Jewish leaders. If you look down on verse 59, it tells us that Jesus said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. There's been a scene change. Jesus, of course, fed on the grass. He retreated to the mountains. He crossed the sea. The crowds tracked him down. They either found Jesus in the synagogue or at some point they've made their way inside. Jesus is probably the guest who's teaching at the synagogue. Either way, it seems now that the Jewish leaders have bubbled up to the front. They, representing the people, are finishing out the conversation. And what we see is that they're grumbling. It's important, especially, that we see it's the Jewish leaders because they've already resolved in John chapter 5 to kill Jesus. We'll see this again as soon as we get into John chapter 7 there in the beginning of John 7. Jesus avoids the Judean countryside. Why? The Jewish leaders are already trying to kill him. So Jesus is now having this conversation with the leaders. They begin to grumble against him. Now, the astute Bible reader is getting flashbacks to the Old Testament. We see a kind of reenactment of Israel's manna episode, only it's heightened because we're not talking about manna and Moses. We're talking about bread come down from heaven. Jesus Christ, God become man. They're grumbling not just at the prophet, but the prophet who has come into the world. This is really Israel's history. God provides and they grumble. You might think back to Exodus 15 after God has miraculously brought Israel up out of the house of slavery through plagues, parting of the Red Sea, pillar of fire. After all of that, Israel grumbles over thirst. Chapter 16, Israel grumbles over their hunger. Numbers 10, the people grumble over hardship. Numbers 11, again, the people grumble over hunger. God provides manna. Numbers 12, the people grumble over the manna. If you've ever had the joy of feeding a toddler, you understand. (laughs) I'm hungry. Here's some food. Not that food. (laughs) Israel likewise grumbles. They say, would we have stayed in Egypt where our masters fed us cucumbers? Like really, you would rather be slaves with cucumbers. God provides for his people, they complain. God provides, they complain. God provides, they complain. Manna, then grumbling. Then God himself now at the fullness of time comes down from heaven to meet his people's needs. How do they respond? They complain. Now notice, there was no complaining when Jesus was healing the sick or cooking up fish and chips The second Jesus calls them out and calls them up to the real gift, which is himself, eternal life, communion with God, future resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, as soon as Jesus calls them to himself, grumbling. Jesus, of course, has been asking the people to come to him, to trust in him, to believe in him. Faith is trust in the promises of God that he knows best about us. Complaining says, I know better than God about how to take care of me. Brothers and sisters, it's always worth checking our hearts for any complaints that we have against God. 
because it reveals distrust in God's salvation and satisfaction. More to the point, what we complain in our hearts against God about is probably what we're looking to for salvation and satisfaction. Jesus comes from heaven to give them life by giving them himself. And like Israel of old, they grumble. And it comes out through their disbelief about his origin. Look at verse 42. We know they're grumbling and it says, they were saying, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, how can he all of a sudden say, I have come down from heaven? They're like, man, yes, God. Uh." Like this dude was born in Bethlehem. Check with Rome. They took a census. He grew up in Nazareth. He lives in Capernaum. We could take you to his house. His father we know, who's dead, His mother, miraculously impregnated as a teen, he wants us all of a sudden to believe he's from heaven. Okay, they think they know all about Jesus' family, his origin, his home. They only understand half of the story. Right, they can only believe what they see. When they see the loaves, all they think is bread. When they see Jesus' influence, they think physical kingdom. When they see Jesus, all they think is man. It's as Augustine says, they only see the flesh and so they miss God. Now, on one level, it's understandable. Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, that the one in the form of God took on the form of a slave. The divinity is hidden, so to speak, such that at first glance, you don't look at Jesus, right? This Middle Eastern Jew, you don't look at Jesus in the flesh and think God. And certainly not when he's hanging on the cross like a criminal. But through Jesus's teaching and miracles and presence in the context of Israel's history and scripture, the Jews should have seen Jesus and known that he was the God-man. The only way you're missing this teaching is by suppressing the truth. You see, Israel's grumblings is really revealing what's in her heart, ingratitude, pride, and unbelief. She has become carnal. The word of God is standing before them and they're shutting their ears. The light of the world is in their midst and they're closing their eyes. What it's doing more than anything is revealing their problem. An inability, a moral or spiritual inability to see the things of God. Jesus highlights this in his next statement. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus comes now with rebuke. This is really the flip side of what we saw in verse 37. The Father, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. We saw this in last week's text. In eternity past, the Father gives a particular group of people, a specific group of people to the Son. That's why Jesus can say with confidence, they will all come to me. Verse 39, I will lose none of them. How does Jesus know that they will come to him? Verse 43, the Father draws them. Okay, verse 43, verse 37, really grabbing the same stick from a different end. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I would highly encourage you to do so. It gives us a fuller picture of this doctrine of election that God in his loving kindness, in his mercy, gave a people a bride to his son and in time he came to save her. 
So the father, we've seen, taking these texts together, the father chooses some. He gives all those he's chosen to the son. The son receives them all. He loses none of them. He raised them all up. But how do they get to the son? The father draws them. Said differently in the way that Jesus is putting it, only those who are drawn can come. This can be a difficult doctrine for us to grasp. Notice this. The Jews don't grumble over any of Jesus' comments about God's sovereignty over salvation. They don't grumble about Jesus saying God chooses and draws and keeps and raises. The Jews love election. Abraham is chosen out of all the families of the world, Genesis 12. Israel is taken up out of Egypt and replaces wicked nations in Canaan. Deuteronomy 7 and 9, not because they were bigger or better, but because of God's covenant loyalty to the man Abraham he chose. They are recipients of election. They love it. They understand that God is free to be God. Their issue is that Jesus is making himself out to be that God. And so Jesus responds to the rebuke. Said differently, Jesus is saying, I am indeed the God who gives life and raises the dead, but you're not my people. How do I know? You don't recognize me. You don't receive me. John 1, verses 10 through 11 and 12. And the Father is not drawing you. What Jesus is not saying, and this might be how you're inclined to hear it, Jesus is not saying, well, you're rejecting my offer to eat. Well, sucks to be you. Like you weren't really invited to the party anyways. No, Jesus has come to offer bread from heaven to the world. He's freely and genuinely offering life to all. He's bidding God's covenant people to receive them as their Messiah. We see this in the Synoptics Gospel, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He says that like a mother hen, he would love to bring in Jerusalem, his people, like his brood. But Jesus is saying, you don't recognize me, you don't receive me. It reveals just how corrupt you are, just how sick you are, just how blind you are, just how spiritually dead you are, that you cannot come to me unless God draws you. You cannot come unless you're drawn. Now, you might be inclined to read that and grumble against God as though he's withholding something from people, withholding something from people that they deserve. Or as though God is holding people back who are trying to understand and get to him. Now, Jesus' comment instead is highlighting humanity's corruption, its sickness, and it highlights just how merciful and powerful God's salvation is. That he actually overcomes us to save us. If we are to be saved, it must be God from beginning to end. You cannot come unless you're drawn. One 13th century theologian writes, coming to Christ surpasses human ability. Meaning, we cannot do it apart from divine intervention and aid. This is important. It's not because God has made us deficient. Okay? It's not like when you buy your kids or roommate or someone a present on Christmas, you find out Christmas morning and needs batteries. <laughs> but you forgot to get batteries. Okay, we did not come with some assembly required or some parts missing. Coming to Christ surpasses human ability because we have disabled ourselves through sin. 
You see, what something can do is limited by what something is. We might say in a kind of more technical way, nature proceeds and grounds action. Okay, you can only do what you are. You don't find chimpanzees racing against gorillas to get into space. Okay, there's no cold war for the chimps. Why? It exceeds their natural capacities. They don't have the desire, the drive, the intellect, the skill to do it. You don't find cats breathing underwater. Catfish, yes. Real cats, no. Why? Not only do they hate water, but it exceeds their natural capacities. They don't have gills. You do not find people naturally inclined to God. Why? Sin. Two texts to highlight this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul there writes, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Paul writes. You see, coming to Christ exceeds human ability. It's not God's fault, it's man's fault. We're not talking about mankind as God has created it, but as man has deformed it. We're talking about fallen human nature. God made Adam and Eve in the garden with natural desire for God, naturally in relationship with God. We have fallen because of sin. Man still has capacity for relationship with God. Man still has the faculties for relationship with God. We can hear the gospel, we can make a choice, but because we're sick, the natural man always rejects God. Okay, I wanna to try to illustrate this. If you are healthy, if you have a properly functioning body, you can walk. You might not always want to, but you can walk. Okay, you have legs, you got lungs, you got blood, you got a working heart, a nervous system, you have enough muscle to carry your body around, you can walk. You have that in a hundred or thousands of other things that are necessary for walking. Some people cannot walk. Probably, I would think, for at least one of two reasons. Some people cannot walk at no fault of their own. They were born with some kind of deficiency. Perhaps they were born without legs. Maybe something happened to them at some point in their life. Paralysis took over by means of disease or traumatic accident. These people bear no responsibility for their inability to walk. Okay, the person hit by a car or with severe MS is not at fault. They are hindered by nature, but not in a way that they're liable. Does that make sense? This is not what we're talking about. Some people can't walk because they've become so unhealthy through willful neglect. They have equipment, they have legs and lugs and lungs and blood, they have a nervous system, they have brain, they have a spinal cord, but through habits of overeating, of lack of movement, of no exercise, of rejection of medical recommendation, they've come to the point where they cannot walk. They lack the muscle strength, the bone and joint density and strength. They lack the lung capacity. They even lack the will or desire to walk. They have all the faculties necessary, but they're so sick they cannot do what they were made to do. Okay, this is what we're talking about. They are limited in their nature in such a way that they bear responsibility. 
God did not make us deficient. We have chosen disease. Man has a mind to hear the gospel. He can think about the gospel. He has a will to choose. And when the non-Christian, or when us, before we were regenerate, heard the gospel, we did what we wanted to do, which was to choose sin. We willfully rejected God. Like the paralytic in Jerusalem, we saw we need God to speak to us, to tell us to get up and walk if we are to come to Christ. So when God draws us, us who are spiritually disabled, he's doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God, when he saves us, when he draws us, he overcame our sin and our sickness. He's rolling back the curse. He's calling us home in Christ. He's drawing us. God can do this because his grace is greater than our sin, his love stronger than our hatred, his life more powerful than our death. God draws us. He does so by healing us. Now, this might present for you another problem as you hear this. Again, taking the things we've heard together, all those who the Father gives to the Son will come to him. The Father draws them all in such a way that you can't come unless you're drawn. They all will come to the Son. He'll lose none of them. Does this mean that God forces himself upon us? Are we bewitched? Are we secretly in bondage? Are we some kind of puppets? Brothers and sisters, look at the language. God doesn't drag us to him. He draws us. Augustine writes, don't think you're drawn against your will. You are drawn by delight. Calvin likewise says, as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent so as to compel men by external force. He says, rather, the Holy Spirit makes men willing who are formerly unwilling. More recently, D.A. Carson says, it is the wonderful wooing of a lover. God does not drag us off kicking and screaming. He does not beat our will into submission. God does not succeed in saving all of his people by shackling us. Rather, he saves us by freeing us. We were slaves. God actually makes us free. Where we were blind, God gives us sight. Where there was death, God breathes life by his spirit. At conversion, for the first time, we see sin for what it is, destructive and disgusting. We see our former ruler for what he is, wicked and abusive. And we see God for who he actually is, good and loving and just. And in the moment of conversion, God gives our hearts what it most desperately wants, which is happiness. He gives our souls what it was made for, him. God shows us how beautiful he is and we willingly run. God doesn't have to coerce us. He simply shows us his kindness. That though we were headed for destruction because of our sin, he has offered us life. Life that came through the death of his son. God draws, he heals, he restores, he woos. You might think of it of a bride in the chapel when the doors open and she sees her groom and she willingly runs to him. He woos us like a lover. And notice how God woos us. It might come as a surprise to you. Verse 45, he teaches us. Jesus grounds us in what's written in Isaiah. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who's listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. This is parallel to everyone the Father gives to the Son will come to me. 
This is a new covenant promise found in Isaiah 54 that God himself becomes Israel's teacher. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God becomes our teacher in the incarnation. We might say in some sense that God taught in the Old Testament through the prophets, but in the New, he teaches us through his son. In the incarnation, God stoops low to teach us, to win us, to woo us. He does so by becoming man, by becoming rabbi, prophet, priest, and king. He came to instruct. God continues to teach us today through his word. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important that when we preach the gospel, we preach God's word. This is why it's so important that the height of the Sunday morning service is the preaching of God's word. Because in it, God teaches us. All week, the world is working to woo us away from God. And daily, as we spend time in God's word, especially in the gathering, God teaches us. He woos us. He wins us back through his word. God himself became our teacher in the Son. And what also makes New Covenant teaching different is not just that God becomes our teacher, but that he guarantees the outcome of the teaching. You recall what we heard in our scripture reading from Jeremiah chapter 31. Just looking at verse 33, God writes or says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God doesn't just teach us externally, but internally. This doesn't mean that God is teaching us something different in our hearts than what we're reading or hearing in his word. Okay, if someone tells you God has taught them something and it's different from God's word, it is not true. Jeremiah is telling us that God is taking the same spoken word and he's writing it on our hearts in such a way that we become God's people. God's teaching, we might say, works its way from our ears to our hearts and God himself is writing it there. You might think about Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that he is? He then asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. It's not that Peter's had some mystical experience where he's heard something different than what Jesus has been preaching. No, God has come down to be his in the incarnation and the Father has drawn him. He's written his teaching on his heart. It's not something that flesh and blood can accomplish or arrive to. Jesus tells us in John 6, 63, the flesh is of no help at all. The spirit has to give life. And so Jesus is recognizing that the word has made its way from his ear to his heart, not because of him, but because God is drawing him, overcoming his sickness and corruption. God teaches us in such a way that he draws us in and makes us his people. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You might think about maybe your favorite teacher or preacher or speaker. A good teacher, of course, is clear. They instruct you. They're easy to follow. Uh, perhaps they speak in such a way you can remember things. They also captivate you. A good teacher delights you and moves you toward a shared cause. But a human teacher can only teach in a way that's external. They can't actually create the effect in you they desire. 
When God speaks, he creates. He makes worlds. He raises the dead. He woos his wayward children. When God teaches, he captivates. He recreates. He enlightens. He touches not just the mind, but the soul. All those the Father gives to the Son, all those the Father teaches will go to the Son. He draws them in. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can all have such confidence in God's mission. We don't need to be the best teachers. We don't need gimmicks to move the masses. We simply preach God's word knowing that God will draw those who belong to him. God is the one who writes on their hearts. Our aim is to be faithful, to be a conduit. Jesus teaches teaches about his origin it offends his hearers that he's come from heaven with a mission backed by heaven jesus responds in a rebuke in such a way that's intended to lead them to believe in him this is just their first problem we move now to our second scene the jews also grumble against jesus's offer it's not just jesus offer for life it's how we come to receive that life jesus is going to say we eat the bread Moving further still, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Verse 47, Jesus goes on, Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. This is really the gospel of John in a nutshell. Anyone, yes, anyone, even after what we just heard, anyone who believes in Jesus, that he is the word become flesh, God become man, anyone who believes that he came to live and to die for sinners, anyone who believes in him will live eternal spiritual life now physical life later jesus goes on i am the bread of life your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever now jesus we see is being repetitive he has been through this sermon here in John 6, he's being repetitive for clarity. There can be no mistake about what he's saying. Just as God fed Israel manna in the wilderness and it kept them alive for a time, so God now has provided bread from heaven, which is his son that keeps us alive forever. The big difference, of course, is those who ate manna in the wilderness, those who will eat barley loaves on this hillside will die. Everyone who ate manna died. Like, you will find no Jews, 3,000-year-old Jews walking around the Middle East eating manna today. Right? They got a bag of flaming hot manna, keeping them alive. No, manna went bad after a day. It kept you alive for a week. Everyone who ate it died. This is what Jesus has been trying to get us to see, that if we work for bread that perishes, it dies. If it's the whole of our life, we will die with it. Jesus is telling us to orient ourselves to the bread that leads to eternal life, which is him. He's been offering satisfying relationship with God now and resurrection later. Again, what material possessions cannot give, lasting happiness, what we cannot earn, forgiveness of sins, what medicine cannot grant, immortality, Jesus is offering it all as a gift. But we see here now the starting of a shift in Jesus' language. Verse 44, the gift of life is for those who believe. Verse 51, it's for those who eat. This is where the new round of grumbling begins. Jesus is going to press further into this metaphor. 
verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 52 is really highlighting the same problem we've seen throughout the book of John, that of spiritual blindness. It's the same problem, but different metaphor. Think back to John chapter 3. There Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again to enter the kingdom. Nicodemus is wondering, how do I crawl back into my mother's tummy? Right? John 4, Jesus says, I have living water, the kind of water you will never go thirsty. It wells up in you to eternal life. The woman responds and asks, where's your bucket? Like it's a really deep well. Jesus here, eat my flesh for eternal life. The Jews are wondering, you want us to cannibalize you? Jesus is speaking spiritually. They understand him to be speaking materially. Materially. This has been the problem throughout the entire conversation. Don't work for the bread that perishes, but the food that leads to eternal life. They grumble. Jesus responds, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Jesus is doubling down. They're saying, how is this possible? Jesus is saying, it's not just possible to eat my flesh, it's necessary. Apart from eating Christ's flesh, and now he inserts drinking his blood, you do not have life in yourself. Think about how offensive this is. At least on two counts. First, Jesus is saying that they're all dead. Spiritually dead. He's saying, if you've not feasted upon me, I'm talking to a group of dead men and women. You're dead. You do not have life in you. And secondly, the old covenant prohibited the drinking of blood or the eating of flesh with blood in it. Jesus is saying, if you're going to live, you must. Now, what is he talking about? Is Jesus saying we must literally eat his flesh? Crowds jump on him. They start eating. No. It's obviously wrong. We'd be toast. Is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper? Is Jesus saying we're saved by faith and ritual, some mix of trust in him and works of the church? No, eating and drinking here are metaphorical ways for describing believing in Jesus. To eat and to drink is to believe in Jesus. It's to receive the whole of Jesus. Jesus is inserting the notion of his flesh and blood because he's telling us what we receive. We receive the whole Christ and his cross. God become man, beaten and bruised and broken on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is speaking metaphorically about believing. We'll see this in the text. Look at verse 54 again. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This runs parallel to verse 40. Look there. Jesus says, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is communicating the same truth, but he's pressing down further into the metaphor of eating and drinking, into the bread metaphor. Who has eternal life? Who's raised up on the last day? It is the one who believes in Jesus. Recall what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We've, sent, we've seen this all throughout the book of John. John 3 verse 16. 
For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 18, everyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus, we come into this eternal life by believing, period. You think that Jesus neglected to tell Nicodemus the other half of the equation? <laughs> Imagine going to the movie theater, you buy a ticket to see, I don't know, I don't think there's anything worth seeing right now. <laughs> Top Gun 2, still haven't seen it, you buy a, I think Tom Cruise has worked it out, it'll be at the theaters until the second coming. You buy a ticket to see Top Gun 2, you get to your, your specific theater, Theater 7, the attendant asks to see your ticket, you show her, and she says, oh, this is a ticket to see the movie, it gives you the rights to watch it, but you still need a ticket for a seat. You're thinking, what? She says, I can't let you in until you get another ticket. You need a ticket for a chair. You're thinking, why did they neglect to tell me I needed a second ticket at the office? Jesus is not standing here thinking, oh shoot, I forgot to tell Nicodemus about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> like I hope he figures it out between now and death. Jesus is not complicating salvation. It's a gift that we receive by faith. Jesus is explaining it by means of metaphor, a metaphor that's offensive because it leads us right to the cross. Jesus has been saying all along, it's those who believe upon him who have eternal life. He's speaking in keeping with the bread sign, in keeping with their demands or the reference to manna in the wilderness. Jesus is speaking in metaphor, which he's been doing all along. You might recall learning about analogies in grade school and how to write them. Do you guys remember this? Okay, like what a cent is to a dollar, an inch is to a foot, what an eagle is to a bird, a shark is to a fish. You write it, eagle, colon, bird, colon, colon, shark, colon, fish. You guys remember this? Some of you, like tornado hit your brain. Okay, welcome to sixth grade. <laughs> Jesus has been making an analogy here the entire time. He's using a metaphor. What faith to eternal life, eating is to satisfaction. Okay, if you're writing this down, faith, colon, eternal life, colon, colon, eating, satisfaction. You have to believe to have life. You have to eat to be satisfied. This is the analogy. Jesus has been mixing the analogy the whole time. Look back at 35. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You expected to read no one who believes in me will lack life. The one who believes has eternal life. But Jesus is mixing the metaphor. He's doing it again now but in reverse. It's not the one who eats is satisfied. It's the one who eats has eternal life. Does that make sense? And Jesus can do this with the eating and drinking because it's metaphors of faith. What eating and drinking communicate is that you have to appropriate Jesus for yourself. It's fitting ways to describe Jesus because in eating and drinking, we receive Christ and his benefits. You have to eat. Jess makes like really good sourdough. Not just, just over there. Not just saying this, really good sourdough. I probably most of you have this, our potlucks and different things. It smells good. When it comes out, you can hear, you know, she's cutting it, the crunch. You can see the steam coming out. The structure that would make Paul Hollywood proud. The butter melts right on the bread. 
It's a treat for the eyes, but you also have to eat it to be satisfied and live. Again, it's not enough to listen to Jesus' teaching or to be in his presence. You have to appropriate him and make him yours. And we do this by faith. In faith, we run to Christ with our hunger and he satisfies us. We embrace him and all of him, including the offense of the gospel. That God became flesh, that he bled for our sins. Okay, getting back to the question about the Lord's Supper. Again, we're arguing that this Jesus is speaking about believing in him. In that sense, Jesus is not speaking directly about the Lord's Supper, but only indirectly. Okay, this is what I mean. The text is about Jesus. Jesus is bread from heaven coming to give life to the world. Jesus is using the bread metaphor to describe how he satisfies and gives us life. That we must feast upon him to live. It's an act of faith. The Lord's Supper is that same truth made visible. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus is bread from heaven. We feast upon by faith his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, this text is about Jesus. The Lord's Supper is about Jesus. No doubt this text applies to the Lord's Supper, but to say it's about the Lord's Supper is to move from sign, bread and manna, back to sign, bread and wine or juice. No, the text and the meal are intended to point to the same reality, which is Jesus Christ come to give life to the world that we appropriate by faith. Jesus is not saying believe and eat the Lord's Supper for salvation. He's saying believe the whole of me. God become flesh, bloodied on a cross, believe in me and live forever. My death for your life. So when you read the text, don't think Jesus is saying you must physically eat something for salvation. Jesus is saying we must believe. I love how Augustine put it. He famously wrote of this text. Why do you make ready your teeth and stomach? Believe and you have eaten. He says, believe and you have already eaten. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we have already eaten. In the most important sense, we have believed upon Jesus Christ for salvation, that he is bread come from heaven to give life to the world, that he gives that life through his death. Believe and you have already eaten. And then Jesus goes on, bringing out more of the benefits of faith in him. 55, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me or abides in me and I in him. There's this kind of mutual indwelling that we get when we believe upon him. Just as the living father, okay, the God of life sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. The kind of life, life that the father and the son have and share in a sense they give to us it comes by faith or by feasting this is the bread that came down from heaven it is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died the one who eats this bread will live forever this is why the eating the flesh and the drinking blood metaphor is so powerful it tells us how jesus gives us life you see god the sum assumed flesh to do at least two things. First, he, of course, he represented us as our covenant head. God really became man. He fulfilled under the law everything that was required of us. 
living righteously, perfectly, and yet being punished for our sins. Jesus in his death gives us the gift of his death so that we do not have to die, not under the weight of God's wrath at least. Jesus satisfies God's justice. It's his flesh that he gives us that was pierced for our sins such that when we believe in him, when the Father looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. It's a legal standing. We know we're still sinners, but when God looks at us, he sees perfect. Why? God became flesh and he bled on our behalf. The second thing that God the Son does in assuming flesh is he heals us. Brothers and sisters, before Christ, death was undefeated against flesh and blood. Didn't matter how healthy you were, how wealthy you were, how qualified your doctors were, if you go against death, you lose. And what Jesus offers us is the promise of spiritual life now and resurrection later. But flesh had to rise first. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as it is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It is because Jesus died and rose in the flesh that we one day will rise. He assumed flesh to heal us. He had to be made like us in every way. Gregory of Nazianzus notably wrote, famously wrote, that which is not assumed has not been healed. It is what is united to divinity that is saved. God could not save us, forgive us of our sins, heal us, raise us from the dead permanently apart from him becoming man, suffering in our place and raising from the dead. Jesus becomes flesh to heal us. He does so through his life, through the cross, through his union with the flesh. The word becomes flesh to heal our flesh. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the dead that we may be raised on the last day and live forever. He made our sins his, his, our sickness his, our death his. Why? So that his life could be ours. It's as we look to the flesh of Christ, beaten, bloodied, bruised, and risen, and as we feast upon him that we have life. That ought to lead us not to grumble, but to praise God for his provision. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your loving kindness to us. We praise you for your mercy. We thank you that in your love you sent your son to die for us, to give us the gift of life. We do pray that if anyone here does not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would write your teaching on their hearts. We pray that they would hear the offer and respond to Jesus this day, that they would believe upon him. We do pray that your word would continue to go to work on us throughout the rest of the week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.